So within our city, there is a pervasive illusion. And that pervasive illusion is the belief that there are two kinds of people. There are those weirdos who praise God on Sundays, and then there's everybody else. And this is just fundamentally built on a faulty premise, because at the end of the day, everyone praises something. Everyone, in the Latin root of the word praise, prize, everyone prizes something. Everyone has something that they locate at the center of their life, that prize, that thing which they chase. Alan Hirsch is a missiologist and an Australian church planner. He writes this. He says, everyone has a God in the sense that everyone puts something first in one's life. Everyone prizes, everyone prizes something. Money, power, prestige, self, career, love, and so forth. There must be something in your life that operates as your source of meaning and strength, something you regard at least implicitly as the supreme power of your life. Everyone praises something. Everyone directs their life around a particular end goal. Everyone's looking toward something. In the words of David Foster Wallace, everyone worships. Everyone worships. The only question is not whether or not you worship, but what you worship, what you praise, what you prize. And Los Angeles is a city of praise. You find praise, a full expression of, of, of screams, hands raised, and whole bodies in attentive praise at every single Dodger, LAFC, and like fill in the blank of your sports team in our city. You can find praise within the almost uh, um, sa- the sacrificial way of life by which we give ourselves to romantic pursuits or just sensual pleasure. We give ourselves to an almost monastic level of devotion and self-denial um, for the sake of career. We love and chase after. We pursue the praise of others as the thing which we most prize. Every single Taylor Swift conference, every single new Apple unveiling is a prize, is a praise that is happening. And if praise is the means by which we lift up our attention and our affection and our our attention to something, then with that little piece of metal and glass in your pocket, we are all continually praising. We are all continually prizing. It's not a question of whether you praise, but what you praise. And the predominant problem here in Los Angeles with our praise in the secular age is not that the materialist secular age has liberated us from praise. It simply redirected our praise, moving us away from the transcendent and the divine to, and nothing against her, Taylor Swift or your career. We have danced to many of Taylor Swift songs in my house. Nothing against the Swifties in the room. The whole question simply is, what happens to a soul when the heart that is wired for praise prizes something that isn't transcendent, something that isn't divine, something that isn't able to meet that? Adam Grant writes in the New York Times, this was coming just out of COVID, and he was trying to name the thing that we're all feeling on the other side of COVID in the past couple of years, which is we're not flourishing, but we're not all of us at least depressed. What's that space right here in the middle that we all seem to identify? Adam Grant, writing for the New York Times, says, it wasn't burnout. We still had energy. It wasn't depression. We didn't feel hopeless. We just felt somewhat joyless and aimless. And it turns out there's a name for that languishing. Languishing is a sense of stagnation and emptiness. It feels as if you're muddling through your days, looking at your life through a foggy windshield. Languishing, languishing is the symptom of the heart whose prize is not big enough 
for what the author of Ecclesiastes called the eternity in our hearts, what a more contemporary author referred to as that God-sized hole, that there, we are made to be satisfied within the divine, the transcendent, within God himself. And so once again, I say, the question is not whether or not you praise, but what you do. Now to return back to Acts chapter 2, what we just read for just a moment ago, is this story of the community of the early church, this people group who stewarded and sustained an ongoing work of God's presence and spirit in their community. And they did it through being devoted to, we just read, the apostles' teaching, to orthodox, faithful teaching, to the community fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, the Lord's Supper, the devotion to the prayers. They were devoted to holding all things in common, selling things, as any meeting the needs of one another. It was their devotion, their commitment. We looked at last week that they were devoted to hospitality, opening up their homes, their tables, and their hearts to one another. And here we read today, the one extra next thing that they devoted themselves to was to praising God. They were a community committed to praising God, devoted to the praise of God, wholeheartedly committed. They could not hold themselves back. A stubborn insistence on the daily, it says, daily pursuit of giving God praise, of holding him as the prize. And so then as you read through the rest of the book of Acts, if you were to do it this week, what you find as a result is a community that is flourishing in spite of or despite its circumstances and its situations. In a world of languishing, looking and finding people who are flourishing no matter what they go through is so stinking attractive. How do we get in on that? They found it through being a community of praise. Now the question that we move into is, well, where did they learn how to do that? How did they learn to become a community of praise that was able to flourish in the midst of the propensity to, to, to languish? How were they able to be committed to a particular way of praise in the midst of a world that hasn't changed that much, was constantly pulling them to give their prize to a hundred different things? Where did they learn how to do that? We don't have to look very far because luckily we have this whole library that is all packaged up in one book. For the early church, the playbook of praise for them was the book of Psalms. 150 chapters, this is the book, right in the middle of your Bible, is, is how they were able to immediately go from Jesus' resurrected Lord to a full way of life that was devoted to praise and prizing God that came out in all of these different facets and ways. They didn't have to reinvent the wheel. They weren't trying to struggle to figure out how to praise. They just read the book of Psalms and did what they saw. And so as, well, at least for some of us, maybe, at least some of us in here, find that sort of life attractive, of life of flourishing rather than languishing, a life in which the prize of our hearts is actually able to satisfy, then the playbook of the Psalms is the invitation for us to enter into. And so it's 150 chapters, and so I hope you kept your schedule clear for the rest of the day. I'm just kidding. We're going to do one, one chapter, in one, one psalm, um, one that actually came out of um, our prayer night this past, um, last Sunday. Um, we just, when we enter into our monthly prayer night, um, I always go, I, I, our next teaching series, which you hear more about in a couple weeks, um, is, uh, came out of the prayer night, and, and this came out of the prayer night as well. So if you haven't been to one, you are cordially invited to our next. But today what we're going to look at is Psalm 63. So I'm going to invite you to turn your way in your Bible, flip on back over to the book of Psalms, chapter 63. Um, I would love for you to be able to follow with me, but again, it'll also be on the slides, if not... And so what I want to do here is I just want to move one verse at a time through Psalm 63. Just a slow meditation 
on this one example, this one framework for the life of praise that we want to lean into, the kind of devotion that we want to give ourselves to is a life of praise. And so Psalm 63 is going to be our coach and our guide, our teacher through it all. And so we just turn to Psalm 63, beginning in verse 1. The psalmist, David, we're told, opens by saying, God, you are my God. I eagerly seek you. I thirst for you. My body faints for you in a land that's dry, desolate, and without water. Where does praise begin? Praise begins in the expression of hunger. The expression of hunger. When building up within us, we get to a place where we finally begin to say like David does, looking out at the world, looking at the land that we dwell in, this is a place that is dry and weary and unsatisfying. Here I am in the land of languishing, and I have gotten to a certain point of my heart now hungering that God, my God, is the one that will be able to satisfy. And so I eagerly seek is how the psalm opens. Praise begins with your hunger. Praise begins with your hunger. And so the primary attempt of the enemy, the one who's out to rob God of praise, is not simply, at least in our context, at least in our age, not to rob you of praise in the sense that moving you to praise whatever idol or God you can think of. One of the primary ways in a secular, within our context, within our culture, the way that the enemy works here and now is to distract you from true praise at a buffet of continuing, constant, other little offerings. And so hear me, I'm not, like I said, anti-home state. I am not, because uh, uh, I just was, prizing and praising it. I am not anti-Taylor Swift. I'm not anti-fill in all of the sports, career, romance, all the things. I'm not any of those. But what we have to be so, so aware of is how the enemy will have us sit at the buffet, eating and eating and eating, never being fully satisfied, but not realizing it because we won't stop lifting our hand to our mouth, pulling from the content, the experience, whatever it may be. There's this story, I don't even know where I found it, but I just remembered it, thinking about it this week, was the story of some weird philosopher guy or something like that, but he had a, a, a wasp that was on his, his plate that had honey and some other stuff on it, and the wasp was sitting there drinking from the honey and he took a knife and he cut the wasp in half. And the wasp, like most bugs, continued to live for a little bit, not long, but a little bit, after, you know, they suffered, you know, severe bodily trauma like that. And he just remembered writing about watching the wasp in its final moments of life still drinking from the honey, not realizing that it was dripping out the back. It's so dark. And yet, and yet, there's a reason that it, it, it sticks. Uh, and it stuck with me. I don't remember where and when I came across the story. Um, I didn't do it, but I remember reading about it. You're like, who is this psychopath? And yet, I, I, I just remember that because I think that is such, such a captivating image of how most of us spend our lives within the city of Los Angeles, within the world today, drinking from that which does not satisfy, not dealing with or aware of the fact that we're missing half of ourselves. And so one of the things for those of us who are seeking to lean into being a community of praise that we need to be aware of is the curation of our hunger. Not just the cultivation, but the curation of our hunger. This is part of the practice of simplicity. This is part of the practice of fasting. So many of the, the spiritual practices 
Generosity, simplicity, fasting are about the curation of your heart so that you're able to actually hunger for God. Not to say that any of these things are, are wrong or bad, but to say, I just know the propensity for myself to keep eating and eating and eating, never being satisfied. And so I choose a life of simplicity. I choose fasting or abstaining from certain things on a regular basis to reset my heart and to identify what's actually going on here. So the sake of fasting is not whipping yourself to make you like be more holy. Part of the work of something like fasting is to, to, to just step away from what I so often distract my deepest hungers from and with. To be able to come back to, in the midst of all of the things that are distracting me, all the things that I give my attention to, there is an eager seeking. And I realize that so many of the things that I'm so prone to feast on are at the end of the day dry, weary, and they're not the water that satisfies. So the first stage of praise is hunger. Verse 2, we move from the expression of hunger into an experience of beholding. So I gaze, I behold, the, the Hebrew, I contemplate on you in the sanctuary to see to understand, as it can be translated, your strength and your glory, your character and your works. The expression of hunger leads to an experience of beholding and contemplating and receiving, seeing God for God. This takes place, we're told, in the sanctuary, in a public context of beholding and seeing God. This is in many ways what continues within the local church Sunday gathering of of collective is us coming into the quote unquote sanctuary, Playa Studios, and together contemplating, understanding, beholding God for who God is. I love the language of uh, gaze and to see. Like I said a moment ago, it can be translated as, as, as contemplation and understanding. This invitation to remember, or maybe for the first time to learn, that praise is not simply the expression of what's going on in your heart, but it is the entering in with your mind to think, to contemplate about God's character, about his works, about his glory and strength. And so part of what our time in the sanctuary, part of what our time is on a weekly basis to gather is to contemplate God's glory, to see his works, to sit with the scriptures open before us and to understand. And as we move into the response time, to behold, to behold the presence of God in our midst, an expression of hunger and an experience then of beholding. Verse three, the experience of beholding leads to now an expression of comparison. An expression of comparison. What does he say? My lips will glorify you. Why? Because your faithful love is better than life. Better than life. Have you found a, a prize that's better than life? Have you found your relationship with God to be one in which you can say this? Your faithful love is better than life. You see the comparison that happens here, which after expressing our hunger, after experiencing God in Scripture and in His presence within the sanctuary, the, the, the afterglow, the after effects of that is such that the David, the psalmist, that those entering into the posture of praise are able to make such an insane claim that the God that they have found is better than life. Work your way up the comparisons of your life. At the end of the day, your life is obviously the biggest one. But where, where does your relationship to God range within the prizes of your life? 
There's always something that's going to be better than something in your story. There's no way you can hold everything equally. And so where does God fall? For some of us, it might be the simple things like Taylor Swift, maybe not, but career, whatever it might be. Maybe it's the way that others perceive me, and so I'll follow God up until the point he calls me to really be humble and vulnerable. What have you found God as being better than? Do you know how you get there? As you think and you contemplate, you begin to appraise. Literally, the word praise is right there in the middle, appraise. You bring one thing up and you compare it to the goodness and the glory, the strength, the character of God, and you situate it. You bring in the next thing, and you situate it. And so you bring, yeah, your story, your career, your life, whatever. But more, most importantly, what you bring in is you start bringing in the, the issues and the areas of your life. You start bringing in things like your guilt, and you begin to compare, and you go, oh, God, you are better than, greater than my sense of guilt and shame, so why do I continue to carry that on if you are the thing I prize most? You start bringing in your fear. You start bringing in the concerns that you have. And, and when you begin to set those things alongside God by really, truly spending time contemplating him, that's how you get there. And so for most of us, we go, man, why isn't God the, the thing that I prize most? I would say that I want that. Most often, what we see right here in Psalm 63 is simply just the absence of contemplating, of understanding and thinking about it long enough. So part of praise is engaging your mind and thinking through where does God land with all this? How are we all doing so far? Okay, good. You guys are here with me, alive. You're either in the zone or you're, you're thinking about home state tacos. One of the two are happening. So all this to say is simply that he moves from this expression of a hunger to this experience of beholding to then now an expression of satisfaction to then comes forward an expression of his whole self. Verse four, so because you are better than life, I will bless you as long as I live. At your name, I will lift up my hands. Notice the whole self is now being caught up in praise. This is not something simply set aside for Sundays. This is not simply something of just the mind or something that is just being sung. His hands are involved in praise. The word bless, is, is, it literally means to kneel. So he's literally saying, at your name, I, I kneel before you as long as I live. I lift my hands in praise. We've already gone through a handful of these. Eagerly seeking you, my lips will glorify you. I will bless you, kneeling before, as long as I live. At your name, I will lift up my hands. Uh, verse five, my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Verse six, when I'm thinking of you on my bed, I will rejoice in you. He is consistently thinking through an expression of praise that is not simply a Jesus is great, you know, in a sentence or two, but it's, it's singing. Joyful, robust singing. It is an expression of praise that fills up his whole self and not just his whole body, but his whole life. As long as I live, he says, I will praise you. So this expression of praise is, man, for some of you, the charismatics in the room, I, I would expect more from you guys right now and you guys are not at all filling in what's going on here. And I mean, I'm not asking for you. Thanks, Isaac, I guess. But like, I, this, I, I don't know how to help some of you guys that come from like particular church traditions. And, you know, I've been a part of them too. Just to go, like, it's, it's Bible, y'all. 
Raising your hands like, look at that weirdo. That's the one that's doing what the Bible says. You're the weirdo biblically. Look at that person singing and shouting with joyful praise. Man, they kind of take the Jesus thing too seriously. You're not taking it seriously enough. So praise is a whole self-expression that goes into your hands, into your kneeling, into your singing with joyful words, shouting in praise, glorifying. Y'all, just gotta, I guess you guys got to meditate on that a little bit more. You're still contemplating. You guys will catch up with me later. Verse, thank you. Did you guys not get enough coffee or what's going on here? Verse four, so I will bless you as long as I live. At your name, I lift up my hands. And then here comes, on the other side of the expression of his whole self, he finds an experience of the presence of God by which he is satisfied. Verse five, you satisfy me as with rich food. If you've got your footnote open on rich food, you know what it says? With fat and fatness. He's, ta- he's, he's like, you satisfy me like the best, cut, like for the vegans in here, the best piece of tofu, right? Or like the best piece of with fat and fat, filling, satisfying me. And when I come out of a whole self-expression of praise, I experience satisfaction. You satisfy me. In a languishing world that's never enough, On the other side of an expression of praise and devotion, I find myself satisfied in your presence. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Satisfaction. You satisfy me as with rich food. There's a pastor in New York, uh, John Tyson, who says that God is utterly committed to meeting your deepest needs or deepest desires by thrilling you with himself. Thrilling you with himself. I don't know what kind of context or culture that you come from, but just notice in verse five, what is the, what's the basis of the satisfaction that David experiences in praise? Is David satisfied with what God does for him? Is God satisfied with the kind of ways that God showed up and provided for the parking spot that I got last week or the you know, fill in the blank of whatever thing? You satisfy me as with rich food. You satisfy me. The satisfaction is in God himself, not in what God does for him. I had this conversation with Lily and Amy over uh, lunch, uh, I think it was Monday, and we were just talking about the necessity of growth in the spiritual life. The movement towards maturity is where our praise and worship of God moves from worshiping God for simply what he does for us and how he's you know, helpful, useful to us. And we get to the place of worshiping God for who he is. And here's the thing. The only way sometimes that you get there is by going through what might be called the wall or the dark night of the soul. When God will actually let you go into a season of withholding all the benefits and the experiences that he gave you in the first stages of your discipleship so that you can reach the place of true depth and maturity, which is loving God for God. Because this is all mature love. Think about this. I don't know if uh, Alex and Allie aren't, maybe they're still on their honeymoon. They just got recently married, so I was thinking about them. But just for those of you, you can imagine this, being recently newly married and your spouse comes in, you know, you guys are married like two or three weeks in. Just tell me again why you married me. Tell me again why you, like you wouldn't go back on it, why would you? You know, and just think about it. You know, if you, you were going, you know, it's, 
it's really the, the absence of college debt, I think, that was like the primary, like when I was considering you amongst other people, it was just the lack of bringing that into the, the house, you know, that was really helpful. Or like, you know, you've got your uncle who really, really likes you and he's getting up there in age and he's, you know, you know whatever, you know, a styrofoam cup magnate or something like that. He's got some kind of crazy money. And I really would, you know, that, that was just looking for, I know where the styrofoam cup came from. I, your guess is as good as mine. But just imagine being engaged in a relationship with someone and why do you love me? And every reason that they gave you was simply because of what you provided for them. That's not love, that's, that's an employer. That's not love, that's an employee. And what I just love here is this invitation that true praise is how we move from loving God just for what he's done for us to loving God for God. True love true devotion, where the prize is not the little things that God does for me as beautiful and good, and as much as we should pray for, 100%. But when we begin to start loving God for God himself, irrespective of the ways that he shows up, and at times shows up differently than we would expect. You satisfy me with rich food. So now we have this expression and this experience of satisfaction, which leads into verse six. We move from a public-like expression of praise to now it's private expression. When I think of you as I lie on my bed, I meditate on you during the night watches. There's an expression of praise that doesn't just happen in the room with everybody's hands lifted high, praising worship. There is also an expression of praise that's you in the silence and the quiet of laying in your bed at night and just as you're going to sleep, thinking over God who he is, his character and his works, and meditating on God, thinking about him while you lay in bed at night. This past week, like I think almost all of us have at some point or another, couldn't sleep because there was a police chopper overhead. And uh, is that just my neighborhood? No, that's not just my neighborhood. Don't act like that. You haven't had that happen. Um, police chopper overhead because we live next to the tents. So there's always some, something going on. So I couldn't sleep. And so I'm laying there listening to the police chopper. And as I'm laying there, my, your, your mind just starts to, you know, go at night, in the quiet of the night. And um, sometimes it's just like stupid stuff. And then other times you get caught in the fear spiral. How many of you got caught in the fear spiral? Yeah, you all know the fear spiral. How about the guilt spiral or the shame spiral? You ever got caught in one of those? Super fun, right? Um, and so here I am, I'm in the fear spiral. I'm going to all these weird dark places of like, what if my family, they all just spontaneously combusted? And like, you know, you just start going, what would I do? What decisions? What would I go with my life? Like all this, like you just start thinking through all of the worst case scenarios that, would, that potentially could happen. And man, it's, it was so great because earlier that day I was preparing for this sermon. I just, it came back to me. I will meditate on you in the night watches. And so I just began to just go, okay, I'm, I'm gonna, as much as I can, I'm gonna set, try to push slowly, push these invasive thoughts back by just, not like exercising them in some kind of weird way, but just by reminding myself of the character of God and who he's been and where he's been in my life. And just slowly over a couple of minutes, it began, I just felt my, myself come back to myself and I began to experience what's a lullaby in our home is Psalm 4.8. I will both lie down and sleep, sleep in safety for you lead me to peace as I trust in you. And I just found that expression come back as I began to meditate on him, an experience of his presence as a response to the expression of my praise. 
when I think of you, as I lie on my bed, I meditate on you. And then in verse seven, we get the big conjunction. What is built up from all of this and where is all this going? Verse seven, because you are my helper, I will rejoice in the shadow of your wings because you are my helper. Now, depending on how you think of the word helper, this is everything from like an executive assistant to, you know, fill in the blank, house clean, I don't know. Like, what's your helper? And so the problem with this is just in English that helper, we tend to think of as subservient. We tend to think of as an assistant or, you know, you think of like Robin with Batman, right? Like just he's, he's, he's there, like every now and then he might help, but he's just, you know, off to the side. Theo like that, all of y'all are missing out, but me and Theo are loving Batman and Robin. And so because you are my helper can be misleading, but help in the Hebrew, it's there, is this Hebrew word that denotes, like, I, I can't put it, it's salvation. Like we did Batman and Robin, let's go over to Lord of the Rings for a second, because you're not allowed to be a pastor if you don't quote Lord of the Rings at least once. It's some evangel, I don't know, some rule. But um, if you remember Two Towers, and if you haven't seen it, the picture will come to mind regardless. Two Towers, you got the battle, the whole battle is going, it's falling apart, it's the end of the line, it's not gonna work out, it's gonna fall apart. And then you've got the scene where like the shining Gandalf comes over the hill, right? Comes down, and what happens? Where there was defeat, now the help has arrived, and now there's victory, Right? This is much more akin to the Hebrew word of etzer, of helper. It's talking about salvation. It's talking about where there was impossibility, now there's possibility. Where there was defeat, now there's victory. Where there was, there's no way we're going to be able to move forward, there's now a new way forward. And etzer is predominantly used to talk about either God and his salvation work. It's used to talk about military help. And in my favorite place, in Genesis chapter 2, misread all the time, it's the way that God talks about women in relationship to men. Women are men's helper. They would not be able to do this whole being human thing apart from them. We need both male and female to image God. There's the helper, right? So it's not a downplay, but it's to raise up and to say, where there was impossibility, there is immense possibility, and there's a new way forward. And what he is reflecting on is, God, you have been my helper. You have been my salvation. Now David's looking over his story but within the larger story of Scripture, what we, what we just bring into mind, how has God helped me? How has God brought, God brought life when there was death, righteousness when there was sin, uh, uh, freedom when there was guilt, and, and life when there was shame? How has God brought all of that about? The way that the story is building up to what David is pointing us to is that God is fundamentally going to do this work for his people through the sending of his son, through Jesus Christ. And the work that Jesus brings about when he goes to his cross and he dies in the place of sin, and then when he resurrects three days later and returns, that this bodily work, this historical work that God has brought about through the person of Jesus is by which we look at and we say, you have been my helper. And now I rejoice in the shadow of your wings. The wings image is, you know, mama bird collecting her little ones underneath her wing. Safety and warmth and protection. God, through the work of Jesus, you have brought me in close. Where there was unrighteousness, you have made me free. Where there was enslavery and addiction, you have brought me into a new story. And I now, I, I rest under the shadow of your wings. Here we have just this deep experience of salvation. Verse 8 then leads into an experience of intimacy. The psalmist says, I follow close to you. Or I, literally, it's I, I cling to you. I hold on to you. I passionately pursue you. And you, God, your right hand holds on to me. 
I've used this expression before, this illustration, but the image of this is, it's just this common metaphor for the intimacy that you see throughout the scriptures, where God is holding on to his people, and then his people say, and we're holding on to you. And it's the image of, you know, a a, a mom or a, a father holding their child. It's one thing for the mom to hold the toddler, right? The toddler can be kicking and screaming, right? But there's a, there's a moment of intimacy, which is the moment when mom and dad are holding the kid and the little one rubs, you know, rubs, wraps their, their tiny little chubby arms around mommy or daddy's neck. At the end of the day, that's not a, they're not any more safe. They're not any more less likely to fall. If mom and dad let go, that kid's going to the ground. Like they do not have the strength to hold up their own body. What that's about is intimacy, the clinging that we hold on to God, which is not a measure of our safety or our security. The safety and security is in the fact that God holds us, the fact that he's our helper. When we wrap our arms, when we cling on to him, is about the expression and the experience of intimacy with the Father as he holds us. And so praise is the space where we wrap our arms around the God who's holding us. Now all of this leads, verse 9 through 11. We'll read all this together. David returns back to his present situation, which if you have your Bible open and you go back to the top of Psalm 63, you've got the little heading there, um, which is, is part of the text. And so it tells us the story of the psalm, which is, it's a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the story of David, king of Israel, raised up, all of his sons were just absolute knuckleheads, one of which was Absalom. Absalom stirs up a coup, takes the throne from dad, and David goes on the run running through the wilderness. So when we read, he wrote this psalm in the wilderness of Judah, this is not like he's like on like some kind of monastic silence and solitude retreat, like hike through the wilderness. He's running for his life, running for his life. And so now he's gone through the stages of expressing praise and experiencing God's presence. And so he returns back to his present situation. And he says, those who intend to destroy my life will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the power of the sword. They will become a meal for jackals, hyenas. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by him will boast, for the mouths of liars will be shut. Two things that happen on the other side of an expression of praise and the experience of God's presence. One is there is a renewed courage and hope in the midst of your situation. Some of you may not say, I don't have a son who's out to kill me. Yeah, you, you have... Maybe a very different story right now, a different season that you're in. But regardless, praise brings a new filter by which to view the experience that we're going through. One that is based in the faithful love of God. One that is based in the satisfaction that he provides. One that's based in the fact that he's committed, that he's my helper, that he's my protector, and that he's with me through this all. And so David is able to relook at this scenario and situation, and he has a new courageous hope that even though I'm on the lamp, even though I'm on the run, hiding in caves, on the run, not from just some any big bad guy, from my own son, even in the midst of that story, I know that this is coming about in a different way, that God is still protector and with me and committed to me. But the second thing that this does, and it's a blink and you'll miss it, it's two words here, ready? Verse 11, but the king will rejoice in God. Who's the king he's talking about? So who currently is wearing the throne, or sitting on the throne, wearing the crown back in Jerusalem? Who's technically the king right now? 
It's, it's Absalom. It's the, it's the rebellious little ruler who's come in and taken over the kingdom. And now he's on the run. And yet, even in the midst of his running, he still has the ability to say, in, out of praise, out of his experience of God's presence, he's able to be reminded that the king at the end of the day is me. That the commitment that God has made, that my identity, who I am in God is immovable regardless of who's sitting on the throne. Now, yeah, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. One of the primary things when we're reading through the Psalms and understanding them as the literature that the early church was being shaped by their praise in was when they're reading this, what did they do with the, the king line? David lived thousands of years ago, right? So what's going on there? How do, we, how do we use these kinds of, these verses like this? You ever read through Psalms and like half of them are like when David's on the run, like people are trying to kill him. And you're like, I don't really know. You're in your quiet time with your cup of coffee. And you're like, I'm not really planning on, you know, dodging spears today on the way to work. How do I apply? How do I think through this? You see, for the early church, what they did was understanding Jesus, the Messiah, as the fulfillment, as the true king. Go back and they read into all of these Davidic Psalms, these Psalms of David, and they see them as a, as a replay of the story or a, a preplay of the story of what Jesus would come to do. So just, just think for a moment with me about the story of Jesus the Messiah. Was there a time where he, out of a deep expression of praise in the Father, an experience of God's presence, looked out at his life and said, but those who intend to destroy my life, even though they come after me, at the end of the day, God will be victorious and they will be the ones that will descend into the depths. Was there a time when Jesus was identifying that those came out him, that the enemy who was coming out him would be defeated, not simply in rebellious sons, but in the rebellious enemy, in Satan himself, and that his attempt to come after me will be his own downfall? Was there a time when, the, when Jesus identified, even though the enemy may scream that he is the king of the spiritual realm and Caesar may scream that he's the king of the world, that Jesus reclaimed his identity as being the king of the universe? And said, all who swear by him, that is, all who put their faith and their trust and their prize in him, will boast. They will praise. One element of praise is, is boasting. Paul regularly says that the only thing that we Christians are permitted to boast in is not ourselves, but only in the work that God has done and only in who he is. And so the transformation of what this psalm does, when we read through this weird thing about those who intend to go down to the hyenas or whatever, is what we see is this is a pre-pattern for what Jesus himself is going to go through. And by those who, like he says, boast in his name, they will boast in his name, those who trust in him, those who swear by him, those who praise in him. And so David was able to look at his situation in light of God's promise and faithfulness and able to say, I know I'm gonna boast in the Lord. I know that God's gonna work this over in my good. And those who are in Jesus those who boast in him, whose faith are in Jesus, are able to look at their own situation and praise God and experience his presence no matter the situation that they're in. Closing things. First, in Psalm 63, as this playbook of praise for a community, you find an interplay of expression of God, of, excuse me, an expression of praise and an experience of presence. We go from expression of hunger to the experience of beholding, an expression of glorifying in comparison to the experience of satisfaction, right? Experience and expression, expression and experience. 
What Psalm 63 does, though, is it does give us a helpful corrective, how most of us relate to the work of praise. Most of us relate to praise as we put the experience of God's presence as the thing that we're waiting for until we give the expression of praise. We wait and just kind of sit on our hands, and once God shows up and really goes crazy, then that's when we'll raise our hands. Then that's when we'll kneel. Then that's when we will glorify with joyful lips. Psalm 63 begins with an expression and then the experience. In the words of James chapter four, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. In the words of Second Chronicles, I read this yesterday. Can't stop thinking about it. For the eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth to show himself strong for those who are wholeheartedly devoted to him. Now hear me here. There's two things that you can miss in this. One is this is talking about the experience of his presence, not the provision of salvation. Jesus saves long before you start praising you. But the ongoing life of experiencing God's presence on the other side of your baptism, on the other side of placing faith in Jesus, comes as we pursue him. In the words of, again, John Tyson from New York, God comes where he's wanted. The experience of God's presence is he's looking over the world, looking over the city of Los Angeles, as it were, looking for the community that's wholeheartedly devoted to him, looking for the community that is expressing praise to him, not as the way to turn him over and to get him to do something because they're simply wanting to be satisfied in who he is. And so the first corrective in all of this is for us to realize that expression of praise begets the experience of his presence. Now, two very practical things is just to talk about how do we enter into this as a community? There's public praise and then there's private praise. Public praise, like I said, one of the primary places this happens is in this room together, in the response time and in the the, the songs before the teaching. And even like I said, the teaching is the time when we're able to contemplate and behold who God is together. So all of this Sunday gathering is our chance to behold him in the sanctuary, to see his power and glory. And so part of this means coming to the Sunday gathering with, in verse one, eagerly seeking. Do you come to church hungry? Do you come to church with an expectation that he's the God who satisfies, he's the God who helps, he's the God who's here? Eagerly seeking, the invitation to a public posture of praise is to come eagerly, or as the King James puts it, not just eagerly do I seek you, but early I seek you. Because the word eager or early, is, is the, it's a play on words in the Hebrew. It's the, it sounds like the word for dawn, like in the morning. So again, last week, pastor had again, no shame. Early I seek you. Eagerly I seek you. Showing up with a desire to be fed by God means you don't show up 30 minutes late in time for the sermon and then to leave before anything else. For those of you that are new, this is, you guys, you guys are long for the ride. Whenever you guys are ready to commit, this is for those who are like, oh, I want to be, I want to be a contributing part of a, of, of a community of praise. And it's the first two songs. Can I just tell you, we're working through this as, with our worship team is trying to lead y'all when it's just like, you guys clearly have not cultivated a hunger. And so the whole point is, why is our response time so great in the back half? Is because you've had me trying to cultivate hunger within us for 40 to 45, sometimes more like 50 or more minutes. And then now we're actually able to enter in. But part of taking responsibility for the expression of praise is that I'm I'm on the way to church. I'm cultivating my hunger and I'm curating. I'm 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 building it up. I'm coming early. I'm coming eagerly seeking Him. Amen? Amen. Okay. One of the other things of how this takes place is through the expression. 
raising hands, kneeling, singing out joyfully. And there's no, um, like depending on your Myers-Briggs version of Psalm 63, that's like, so you're introverted. Okay, you get to turn over to like the be still and know that I'm God. Like, Pat, that's more of your vibe, right? Like, we all simultaneously are called to postures of being still and knowing that I am God. And I will praise you with my lips. I will raise my hands. I will kneel before you. Healthy growth in the life of praise is deep expression, both through quiet contemplation and also through expressive joy. And so those of us who are like, well, that's not really my personality. You might need this for your soul more than anybody else. In the way that most of you that this comes really easy might need to be still and know that he is God a little bit more. But all of us together are called for this to be a place of deep expression of praise as we pursue the experience of God's presence. And so those are just a couple of things for public. Next is private, which would be kind of, you allude to this as the psalm goes from public in the sanctuary to dwelling on his bed at night. And so just privately, I'll ask you, how are you curating your hunger? How are you curating your hunger? Like I said, one of the, one of the simple ways of doing this is uh, through, through some kind of rhythm of, of fasting on a regular basis. Either fasting from food or just abstaining from certain things, living a life of chosen generosity. I don't upgrade my phone every single time one comes out. I don't need to go to every single Taylor Swift concert. Like, I don't, you fill in the blank. I don't need to watch every single game. I don't need to do every single thing. I don't need to, cha- like, I have a simplicity even with, with how I do my schedule because I'm prone to overloading my schedule. I have a desire to be there for everyone and to be there, right? These are ways of curating hunger where I'm actually choosing to say no to the buffet, choosing to engage because these are good gifts of God, but I'm not going to allow the enemy to have me just feasting so much that then I show up within my life not aware of how deeply hungry that I am. So just how are you curating your hunger? How are you curating your hunger? And then how are you expressing praise throughout the rest of your week? For some of us, we're the personality where we've got like a killer playlist called Awake My Soul that gets played like on a regular basis. And that's just part of how I get my soul to wake up and to enter into a posture of praise. But how, how are you doing this throughout the week? How are you doing this throughout the week? And I just invitate, and, and then the last invitation is, um, do you have a bedtime schedule that even allows you to meditate on your bed at night? Super simple. The majority of people go to bed with their phone and it's the last thing they look at or the TV. And, and I'm not, this is not like weird fundamentalist stuff. I'm just saying, do you even have a rhythm of life that allows you to fulfill Psalm 63, I meditate you on my bed at night? Where the last thing that I have is just a reflection of praise. Because again, this is about the curation of your hunger. This isn't that Ryan's anti the office, Right? <laughs> but it's about the curation of my hunger of what would it look like for me to begin and end my day with an expression of praise and who God is and what he's, he's done for me. Amen? Okay, so let me just close. All of this, maybe that sounds crazy, but here's the thing. Like I said, at the end of the day, if the question is not whether or not you praise, the question is what? Go back through Psalm 63. Everybody is eagerly seeking after something. Everybody is contemplating and beholding, trying to get a view of something. Everybody is giving their whole life to devoted chase after in pursuit of something. Everyone is seeking satisfaction from something. The question is not whether, but what. And so Psalm 63's invitation is, is the thing that you're praising leading you into languishing or flourishing? Has the thing that you're pursuing satisfied you? 
Has it been your helper, not just showing up and giving little things, but helper in the deepest sense of the word, your salvation? Has your prize brought you greater intimacy or made you feel more isolated? Has your prize brought you, like David, courageous hope in the midst of your circumstances or has it left you depressed and burnt out? Has your prize given you an immovable identity that like David, even though you could have somebody sitting on the throne with the crown on his head and David's still able to say, regardless of my situation, regardless of my circumstances, I know who I am. Has your prize given you that kind of an immovable identity? For those of you that are nodding your head and saying, yes, the invitation is to a deeper life of praise, one that we're gonna enter into right now. For those of you that you're like, I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm thinking through that in real time. The invitation of this time is simply for you to contemplate, to behold who God is and to consider what it might be to come over to the posture of receiving the help that he's brought about, the salvation that he wants to give you, the hope that he wants to provide you, the identity, the satisfaction, just to receive that, to receive that, to look and say, Jesus, you are, you are the king. You are the one in whom I boast and I place my faith and my hope. And I just, I want to give a whole life of praise to you. And I pray that you would help me do that. It's, it's that simple. It's that simple. Let's pray.